2: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fees, 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement. Due. $35 per line connection charge apply. CT Mobile.com.
3: You are entering the news vault from KCBS Radio flames and the smoke. I have a tape recorder here
4: in my hand. Well, nobody would think of doing that. The newsmen were blocking the door. It worked for a couple of seconds. Bringing the sounds of history back to life. Here is your host, Stan Bunger. And on this edition of the podcast, uh, we go back to 1993. a KCBS radio in-depth special report broadcast on April 12th of 93. It was a Time when there was great concern about increasing acts of violence by young people, gun violence in many cases. This is a broadcast that actually went on the air just a few months before a catalyzing event, the 101 California Street office shootings that left nine people dead and six wounded in San Francisco, an event that many believe led to the anti assault weapon laws in California. And at the federal level, a reporter, Rebecca Corral, in this special report, examined concerns about increasing acts of violence perpetrated by teenagers in the Bay Area and
5: California at large. I think it's getting to the point where everybody's kind of used to it in Oakland. Around my house, you know, like if you hear like a gunshot or something, it's like, oh well, you know. And everybody just keeps on doing what they're doing.
1: Nicholas Middleton is 14 years old. A student at Castlemont High School in Oakland, he's young enough to still want to play outside with his friends. But he's old enough and wise enough to know better.
5: You know, around my neighborhood, you know, I don't usually go outside. It's usually stay inside. Why? Um, it's pretty rough around my neighborhood, but... I just stay inside. Nicholas Middleton
1: hasn't been hurt, but like thousands of other kids, he's a victim, living in fear of the explosion of violence around him. Crimes committed by the youngsters who share his playground, school, and streets. And this surge in violence committed by kids isn't isolated to Oakland, either. It's everywhere. In Union City last October, an 11-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 16-year-old attacked Thomas Weinhofer as he waited for his daughter outside her high school. Weinhofer was stabbed to death. Last January in San Jose, three teenagers, the youngest just 15 years old, broke into a home to burglarize it and ended up killing eight year old Melvin Anchetta, who was home sick at the time. Teenagers are expelled from school every week for taking guns into class. Santa Clara County's deputy district attorney, who supervises the prosecution of juvenile suspects, says it's bad and getting worse.
6: We've seen an enormous rise over the last uh, couple years, and more in particular, in the last six months, we've seen a rise and the violent crime rate it's, uh, seems to be doubling over the last few months.
1: Mark Buller says in fiscal 1991 18 kids were arrested on murder charges in Santa Clara County. The next year that number jumped to 30. So far this year teenagers are suspected in 33 murders and Buller says the dramatic rise in the teenage murder rate can't be blamed on gangs either. He says in many cases the suspects in these brutal murders appear to be everyday
6: kids. It goes to all economic groups, through all, all social classes, all races It has no barriers or boundaries, this violence. No matter where you are, you are subject to violence by teenagers.
1: And for parents, Buller says the really frightening thing is, a rise in violence by teenagers translates to a rise in violence against teenagers, an opinion which is shared by kids on the street.
5: Sometimes it scares me, really, because you never know what's going to happen. You never know if, if you're living the next day or whatever. You know, when you're a child, you know, you go to school and you have to worry about these things, but now you have to constantly, you know, look over your shoulder.
1: What do you think the chances are that you'll get into some kind of trouble, that you'll get
5: hurt or something between now and when you're a senior? I think it's a good chance that something might happen.
1: Educators like Mike Janvier know that something can happen long before a kid's senior year. Janvier's the principal at Alameda's Lincoln Middle School, where some parents used to think the biggest problem was graffiti on the bathroom walls.
2: Checking up on uh, one student in particular, uh, found a marker and also found a gun.
1: So you're checking his backpack looking for marking
2: pens? That's correct. Found a gun and then started to to dig as deep as possible, checking lockers, checking uh, close friends, listening very carefully to what, what students were saying, and in the course of the end of the day Thursday and early Friday morning uh, found a second gun.
1: It's not what the principal of a nice little school in a nice little neighborhood expected.
2: Certainly have to say I was surprised. I've been in this business 20 years. I was a high school administrator here in Alameda, uh, for four years, and never came close to, to finding a gun.
1: The fact is, packing a pistol along with lunch is a lot more common than most parents think. A U.S. Department of Health and Human Services study found that at least 100,000 kids carry a gun to school every day.
2: Looking face to face uh, with a gun, that, that was a shock.
1: These are little kids.
2: That's part of the shock. The idea that it would be okay to have possession of a gun was mind-boggling to me.
1: Janvier shudders to think of what could have happened if the boys met in a showdown at Lincoln Park as planned, if the usual crowd of onlookers gathered to watch. Did Principal Janvier think he was immune to this, since he teaches in a school that serves a relatively well-off community?
2: This is an outstanding school, both academically and, and the makeup of the school, the, the parent community. The parents are very involved here. But I also have said this over and over again, we are a public school and we're a reflection of society.
1: Doctor Dr. A reflection of society at its worst can be seen in the emergency room at Oakland's Highland Hospital. Trauma surgeon Dr. Vernon Henderson.
3: Well we see an awful lot of injuries to what we call the central body area.
1: Dr. Henderson's the one whose job it is to patch these kids up when they're wheeled into Highland's trauma center.
3: It's when you see them in the post-operative period and they're crying or they're you know they're calling for their moms or something of that nature That really hits your heartstrings, you know, because you realize that, you know, no matter what these kids were out there doing, they're really just children.
1: Dr. Henderson says in the last five years, Highland Hospital has seen a 450% increase in bullet wounds among kids between the ages of 10 and 19. For him, one of the worst parts of the job is breaking it to the family. He remembers the night a 16-year-old was wheeled into the hospital with a bullet in the head.
3: The parents come in to see him, the mom and, and uh, his sisters and they're just devastated, you know, because they they touch him and they talk to him and all and he doesn't move and, you know, they. Be begins sort of very slowly to get the idea that brain death is exactly what it means, that the patient's dead.
1: And no matter how many times Dr. Henderson breaks this news to a mother, a father, an aunt or a sister, he feels he never gets good at it.
3: You're listening to yourself talk and then there's this crying or screaming in the background and it's almost... It's surrealistic. You know, it really is. It's, it's like you, you see yourself in that circumstance over and over and over again and you know that you're never going to be able to do this and, and you just want to hug this individual and cry with them because it really is sad.
1: Dr. Henderson, Principal Mike Janvier, young Nicholas Middleton, and Deputy DA Mark Buller all want to know why this violence is on the rise among young people and they all have their theories. A look at that when we return with our special KCBS in-depth report Way Past Bad.
4: bad the madder madder. The like
1: there are parents who would like to blame the rise in violence among kids on the music.
4: Homies all standing around just hanging. Some dope dealing, some gang
1: banging. Or on movies.
4: You put the red dot where you want the bullet to go. You can't miss. You can't do that. Wrong.
1: Or on television. One of the things we don't always own up to is that, that our society really, in a sense, has glamorized violence. Dr. Jewel Taylor Gibbs is a sociology professor at UC Berkeley's School of Social Welfare. She believes there is no one thing you can blame for the skyrocketing rate of teen violence. The American family is overextended. The American family is very stressed out. And I think whether it's a single-parent family or whether it's a, a two-parent working family, uh, there are a lot of
5: kids home alone. There are a lot of latchkey kids, and there are a lot of kids without adequate supervision.
1: 19-year-old Rudy Mercado says he had very little supervision when he was growing up in San Gabriel. At the age of 13, he began hanging out with his homeboys, a gang known as the San Gabriel Sangra. On the night of July 3, 1990, he and his homeboys left a party, drove to somebody else's neighborhood, and gunned down a rival gang member.
5: We were just getting high and we decided to go through a drive-by since it was an enemy, you know? And we just went over to, the, to El Sereno, found somebody and just shot him. It was a 22 rifle, shot him 18 times.
1: Mercado says his life has changed in the years since, since he shot a young man who was about to celebrate his baby girl's first 4th of July, since he was tried as an adult and sentenced to the California Youth Authority. But back then, he didn't have much heart for the man he gunned down.
5: He grabbed himself where well, you' was getting shot at, you know, yelling, ah, you know. But, you know, I didn't pay attention to that, you know, just zero that out, just know you got him and he dropped and he died and we just left.
1: Mercado still can't say exactly why he took a gun and pumped 18 bullets into someone and he's not at all sure why so many other kids are doing the same thing. Mercado says the movies and TV he watched didn't influence him that much but he does say his life at home did shape his life on the streets.
5: Maybe lack of supervision, you know, a lot of free time on my hands. Mom was always working, you know, one parent.
1: What did your mom do when you were younger and you started doing things that you weren't supposed to do?
5: She wondered why I didn't, you know. Well, she, like I said, she wasn't really home, you know. She's always working. Never talked about what I did, you know, how my day went at school, whatever, you know. Some, she's wondering if I went to school, you know. As long as I got to school, and, you know, and she figured I'd stay there. But sometimes she'd take me to class. I, to the front door. I walk out the back
1: just how much of the blame should parents shoulder for the violent behavior of our young people? In some of the most extreme cases, Dr. Joelle Gibbs thinks the answer is, a lot. Or some parents should at least be sharing the blame with society. Dr. Gibbs says the kids who perform the most brutal acts of violence didn't get that way overnight. Whenever you see a child or a teenager who has committed a very violent, brutal crime that in a sense they are wreaking revenge on um, a person or on society for something very serious that has happened to them in their life. That something serious can happen at home or it can happen in
4: school. Too many of the kids we're talking about have a kind of home situation that leads to them getting into trouble. Then they go to school and their school is not meeting their needs.
1: Richard Arthur has been teaching for more than 40 years. He's been on the front lines in Watts in the 60s, in Oakland in the 70s. Arthur was the moving force behind an experimental school in Cerritos, California, that offered comprehensive social programs for the entire family of each student.
4: The fact is that when kids graduate, very few of them get into trouble. Now what we're dealing with is kids that either aren't graduating, have no hope at all. I had to try to understand these kids with no hope. They tell me that they're going to be dead anyway by the time they're 20, so why worry about what they do?
1: It's that sense of hopelessness that worries Arthur. His experience as an educator has led him to believe that educators must pick up where the parents leave off, making the schools a place where kids want to be. He says today, in too many schools, what kids look up to are accomplishments on the streets and not accomplishments in the classrooms.
4: Who's the hero in the school I was in? The hero is the kid that murdered someone, went to a juvenile prison, came back and and the girls are saying to me, hey, Johnny's back. And you know, in my day, Johnny was a football hero. And all the girls said, gee, Johnny, wonderful. These kids are heroes because they're not good. They're doing terrible things. But the other kids respect them and like them and try to emulate them. Dean Calhoun is
1: a public health advocate in the East Bay. She's also seen this phenomenon of the most dangerous kids getting all the respect.
0: I think the baddest would look the toughest, have dress a certain way, have the most jewelry.
1: After spending years working in public health on injury prevention and seeing kid after kid die with a bullet in the head, Calhoun realized there had to be a better approach. So she founded Youth Alive, a public health organization dedicated to preventing violence among kids. Working with urban kids, teaching them how to lobby, how to become advocates, she's also learned why life in the ghetto feels like such a losing proposition. Low-income youth in in urban areas
0: really feel like they don't have much. And so what they do have, what they can get are the means of destruction rather than the means of construction.
1: Calhoun urges adults who look at outlaw kids with disgust to think about it. How easy is it to make the right choices when you have access to so little? In some areas
0: when a young person is looking for a summer job they can maybe call ten of their parents friends to find some sort of job opportunity that somebody in a corporation will say okay sure we can squeeze you in for the summer and we can give you some money who does who does a kid call if their parent is on welfare or um, if they're the child of a maybe a teenage mom who's who hasn't had stable professional employment, who did they
1: call? Who did they go to? One young man in Berkeley turned to the streets, and it cost him one of life's most precious gifts. His story and a look at what the future holds, the bleak and the hopeful, when we continue with our special KCBS in-depth report, Way Past Bad.
4: Never bad and bad, cause a brother is mad and at the fact that's corrupt like a senator, soul on the road.
1: You can see the connection between poverty and the exploding rate of violence among kids in the story of Jesse Hunter. He grew up poor in Berkeley with his mother, his sister, and his brother. No money, no resources, and no family connections made him feel he had to make money any way he could.
7: Well, actually, I started off in Junior high selling candy, and then I started selling marijuana.
1: Hunter says he didn't sell drugs so he could buy a fancy car or wear Reeboks all the time. He says his own street friends used to criticize him for not being in it to win it.
7: Basically no money in the house, so you know, my mother, she was on a fixed income A couple of days after the first of the month, we wouldn't have too much food in the refrigerator or whatever. I felt that I could do something about that. So I started selling drugs. Yeah, I was able to make money more than I would have been able to make, I think, anywhere else for a person who was my age, no experience at anything. And since the
1: rules of the street were the rules by which Hunter lived, he realized money brought something else,
7: respect. Starting from a child, you know that money is is the thing in the United States. I mean, everybody wants money. It's, it's a way to succeed. Actually, I wasn't in it to just get a whole lot of money. That wasn't me. Actually, I was kind of scared. That fear
1: made Hunter stop dealing, but on November 21st, 1991, he gave into the temptation.
7: So one day I decided that maybe I'll buy a few rocks and sell them so I could have a little bit of extra money in my pockets. And I went outside and somebody just came up from behind me and started shooting.
1: As he lay there on the sidewalk of a Berkeley street, bleeding, Hunter says the gunman went through his pockets and took his drugs and the money he was out there trying to earn. And he knew right away he wasn't going to die, but he wasn't going to walk again either. Hunter spent four months in the hospital. In the year since he's been out, he struggled to adjust to life and a wheelchair and now he's eager to make the best of his situation. Hunter's become a youth advocate for teens on target, going to schools in the East Bay in his wheelchair, spreading the word about the dangers of life on the streets.
7: And I guess what I'm doing is now is a little something and I hope I can <laughs> least reach one person.
1: Hunter joins Dean Calhoun, the executive director of TNT's parent program, in believing that it's the kids themselves who are going to change things.
0: What we try and do with Teens on Target is teach kids how to get information and how to communicate information about what their
1: problems are. The youth advocates trained by Calhoun lobby local politicians and state legislators on issues like gun control and neighborhood liquor sales. Teaching kids to be advocates
0: for prevention. And so far about 50 children have been trained. At least they'll still be alive. They're all graduating from high school. And they all have these skills now that they didn't have
1: before. It may seem small, and it may seem sad, but it may be a sign of the times that keeping 50 kids alive is a major success in Dean Calhoun's world. Police and prosecutors have another perspective. Many of them believe the social roots of the problem are so deep, change is unlikely in our time. Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney Mark Buller thinks the key is to get the most violent young offenders off the streets for good.
6: I think they, sh- they should be tried as adults because of the nature of their activities.
1: Buller is an advocate of two assembly bills that would pave the way for a murder suspect as young as 14 to be prosecuted
6: as an adult. 14-year-old child committed a crime at put himself in that situation i mean he has committed a serious crime such the fact that when you look at the totality of what he did and what he or she is all about uh... he deserves to be in the Dell court
1: someone from the court system who couldn't disagree more is greg per a public defender for santa clara county
8: you're talking about uh, a child who is very immature um, who's really not in a position to make the kinds of intelligent thoughtful, uh, mature decisions that I think are required before we, st- we t- start talking about locking someone up for the rest of their lives.
1: Deputy DA
6: Buller. Maybe when they reach 15, 16 years old uh, their mental capacities are such that they understand uh, that what they're doing and they're just doing it because that's what they want to do. We're not seeing that oh i didn't know i didn't know that it was really a gun. i thought it because i saw it on tv i thought it was just you know the Three stooges or something like that
1: public defender perasco believes their crimes are in some ways a reflection of their youth
8: when people are adults they're sometimes they don't always but they hopefully have gone through a certain maturation process that you don't expect uh... of a fourteen year old a fifteen year old Um uh, it just You know, I mean, kids are kids, and that's why they're called kids. And we don't call 14-year-olds adults.
1: The
6: prosecutor. How are you going to tell an 8-year-old's mother or father that individual that bludgeoned your child to death is only going to serve the maximum of nine years.
1: And finally, Porasko's answer.
8: I don't think the solution is to take someone who's 14 years old and throw them in state prison for the rest of their life. And I don't think it's as though the kids are getting off scot-free with a slap on the hand and being sent out to the community. They are being punished. They are being severely dealt with. To the families of victims, I mean, nothing is going to replace the person whose life was lost.
1: Youth Program Director Dean Calhoun thinks you can short-circuit this entire argument about what to do with violent kids another way. Keep kids out of the court system by keeping guns out of the hands of kids.
0: Legislators, part of taking responsibility for kids and for families is that um, they restrict access to guns and hold the manufacturers and the distributors liable for the rising deaths of kids.
1: Calhoun points to a study released last month by the National Center for Health Statistics that said 4,200 teenagers were killed by firearms in 1990. That's more than ever before. It doesn't make any sense that, that any kid can get any gun they want.
0: I mean that's um, that blood is on the hands of the legislators and the policymakers who aren't willing to
1: take a stand. A young man who's locked up in the California Youth Authority for shooting a man to death believes gun control isn't enough of an answer. Dion Allen believes by the time kids start arming themselves, something else has already gone wrong. He agrees with the psychologists and sociologists who say the best way to prevent kids from getting into trouble is to provide the basics: a healthy home life, a neighborhood with opportunities for both education and recreation.
7: We should be having boys clubs inside of uh, ghetto neighborhoods. They don't have it. We don't have no money for it.
1: Allen says the kids who are running around on the streets need this kind of alternative to trouble.
7: What are you supposed to do when you go to school, all right, you come home, you do your homework, what are you supposed to do? Sit around the house all day long? You're going to go outside. What are you going to do when you go outside, when you have nothing inside your streets? nothing for you to do, no kind of programs for you to get involved
5: in.
1: When you do give kids an alternative to the streets, it not only gives them something to do, it gives them hope. Most of the youngsters in Castlemont High School's choir, the Castleers, come from poor families in East Oakland's low-income neighborhoods, where you have to dodge drug dealers and sometimes bullets to get to your front door. But these kids are working hard at finding another way.
4: You get a sense of self-worth, you also get an opportunity to see a lot of colleges and a lot of other stuff. Our director, she likes to have us perform at a lot of different colleges and show us that, you know, even if you don't choose to sing as a career, here are some other opportunities, some other choices.
1: High school senior Doyle Harris and the other counselors have a good chance of making it. But they don't plan to simply make life better for themselves by getting as far as they can from home base. Harris feels change for the next generation will only come if success stories like him come back and share the emotional wealth.
4: It's not enough for me just as a pro, as one person to succeed. I, I, I've never felt that way. If I succeed and, and get out of my neighborhood and go make a better place for myself without helping my neighborhood, I haven't done anything but use those people and give nothing back. Way past bad. A
1: KCBS in depth report with technical production from Ron Reynolds. I'm Rebecca Corral, KCBS News Radio.
3: Remember to follow the News Vault from KCBS Radio on social media. On Facebook, we're at News Vault Podcast. On Twitter, find us at News Vault SF. On Instagram, we're at News Vault. Until our next episode, you are leaving the News Vault from KCBS Radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours